Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the author and scholar, Dr. Tiffany Angus. Now, if you think this podcast is getting highbrow, don't worry, it's not. In between seasons of this show, I've actually met a few of you fine listeners, and I understand that highbrow is not the way to go. I get it. I get you. It's chill. Tiffany is a lot of fun and occasionally writes porn. We're good. She's also written other stuff too. Her debut novel, Threading the Labyrinth, is a great piece of historical fantasy. We discuss it a lot, and it's definitely worth picking up. But what's even more exciting from a writing podcast perspective is that she has taught creative writing and has a PhD in creative writing and is working on a book to help you write speculative fiction. Useful stuff, interesting person, wonderful guest. Shall I stop with the intro and get on with the interview? Yes. Let's go. And I'm here with Tiffany Angus. Tiffany, hello. Hello. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks uh, for having me. You're welcome. And my first question, as always, what are we drinking? So I have orange gin and tonic. I'm a bit of a connoisseur of flavored gins. And I had to pick today because it was my birthday a couple of days ago. I must have yeah. a dozen different kinds of gin in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and the orange one was open. So we're having oh, that today. Oh, okay. Beautiful. And it's August. It's still the, the last few days of summer. It's getting cooler, but it's still not cold. A nice, refreshing gin. It's always a pleasure on the show. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. And where I'm talking to you now, is this your office? Is this where you do all your writing? It is. This is the tiny room in our house that sort of, I guess, people call it a box room. And it's my office. And it is full of, it's a mess. This is, It's a good thing this isn't video because it is a tip right now. Behind me are shelves and shelves of books and toys. I don't have children. Mm. I just have toys on yes. the shelves. Yeah. And what are those figurines called that I can see on your shelves there? The little pop vinyls? Pop the little vinyls. Fun- Funko Pops? Yeah. Funko Pops. That's it. Yeah. They're yeah. all girls, though. Okay. Only and the badass girls. I'm glad to see that they're not in their boxes and that they're actually out. It's not that sort of must keep them as a collectible. No. It's just like, no, they're toys. No, they're um, toys. I already broke one and replaced it. I was very <laughs> sad I busted one. Is there one that is particularly rare that you're very proud of having? I don't know if any of them are particularly rare, but I do love the first one I ever got was Antiope. And that was the one that I broke and I had to replace. Wonder Woman's Ant. And how long has this been your, the box room is the, the writing zone? So funnily enough, we moved in here eight years and two days ago. I, okay. I know we moved in here on my birthday, so I know exactly right. how long. We, yeah. So I've had this room for that long. I finished my PhD in this room when I was a lecturer. I worked from here during COVID. This is where I taught from, and this is where I write. Okay. And are you a morning, afternoon, or evening writer? Man, I'm a when I can writer. I've tried really hard. I've really tried hard to be one of those people who gets up at like 5 a.m. and writes. And that's just, it it works for a day. And then I say no. But it depends on if I have a deadline or not. Like right now, we're on deadline to try to finish a book, my my co-author and I on this one project. And so like I wrote pretty much all day yesterday. I tend to start right before lunch because I work out and do stuff in the morning. And so I'll do a little bit of writing. Then I have lunch. Then I really go to town afternoon. But last night I sat downstairs on the couch and worked till about midnight. Oh, wow. So it depends on, yeah, it depends on what's going on. Yeah. But I don't, I'm not really good at having a writing schedule. I think I have delusions that one day I will, <laughs> but it's never going to work. It's never yeah. going to happen. So I just accept that if something's due, I can get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, you're working to deadline on a co-written book at the moment is this the first co-written project you've had no it's not the first novel I ever wrote which Mm -hmm. is on my hard drive that will never see the light of day (laughs) the first thing I ever wrote I wrote with one of my best friends back in the states we went to university together and then funnily enough we kept getting jobs in the same places and in 1998 I want to say we we both lived on either side of a very big cemetery this is in Dayton Ohio and uh, she took me for a walk through the cemetery one day. I'd never been there. And there's a, one of the newer headstones was a pyramid. Oh. Had, had hieroglyphics on it. Oh, cool. And we were at dinner later and I went, oh, you know what? I just thought, what if the hieroglyphics were a clue to something? Yeah. 
And then right there, we started planning out this whole novel with three different timelines and all these characters and all this stuff. And we wrote it on and off for about 10 years. Had an agent looked at it, like we got some attention and then we knew we needed to fix things. And then she moved to LA and not very long after I moved to the UK and it, we look at, it's our trunk project. It's the okay. thing that helped us figure out how to write better. Okay, nice. So is this been as fun a writing book? I, I'm assuming it's not taken 10 years. <laughs> no, it's taken about a year. It's been different because when I wrote that book with Angel, we would be in the same place. We would be in, in my office, in my my extra room in my house there. And I would type and she would walk back and forth behind me. And then I would write this one timeline and she wrote the other timeline and then we would trade. So we would have a lot of in-person meetings. But this project I'm working on now, I'm here in, in England and Val is in Ireland. And so we have Zoom meetings and we yeah. talk about stuff. But a lot of it is, okay, I've posted it on Google Docs. Let me look at it. I'll give yeah. you feedback. So we don't, we're not in person, but we still had a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to write. It's not fiction. Yeah. It's nonfiction. It's about writing. And it's been fun to make it sound like us because <laughs> we tend to make a lot of silly jokes. So it's got silly jokes and has puns yeah. and et cetera. Excellent. So that's made it fun. That's good. And so how did this project start off? Was this you guys having a conversation? Was there an inspiration spark? Like we should write a book about writing? No. <laughs> so a lockdown happened. <laughs> And in spring 2020, EasterCon went online. And right before EasterCon, I had done an online festival that was put together. And I did a workshop about writing historical fantasy. And so at EasterCon, I said, hey, I'll do the workshop. And I did the workshop. And Francesca from Luna Press, she said, hey, let's have lunch. So we had like little avatar people lunch on our computers. And she said, oh, we had a writing book, but it was Gareth Powell's writing book that's now gone yeah. to another house. And she says, yeah. we need a writing book. I saw your workshop. It was great. Do you want to write a book for us? And I said, that would be awesome. Let me talk to my friend who, because Val writes I want to say science fiction-y science fiction. He's more like military science fiction, space right. opera, robots and all that kind of stuff. And so I talked to him and I said, hey, here's this cool idea. Let's do this together. And he said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the working title is Specfic for Newbies, a guide to writing various subgenres of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And I want to add with puns on the end of that, but he doesn't like that right now. I'll convince him. And so there's three chapters and in each chapter, there's eight to 10 subgenres. Okay. So it's everything from big dumb objects to military science fiction to historical fantasy steampunk body horror psychological horror etc and in each section we give a short history things that are cool about it things to watch out for and two activities so it's for somebody who's new to writing that certain subgenre mm. and we split them between us and then some of them we've written together and it's just been so much fun Except a couple times, a couple of them have been a little d disturbing like he did splatterpunk last week he said I need a shower now that was just <laughs> that wasn't fun to write yeah. So. And was it fun researching that as well? Yeah, because there's this thing where you think, I know how to write this, but I don't really know where some of this stuff came from or who coined the term steampunk. I yeah. had to find out where that term came from. And so we've, for the short history, so each of the sections is only two to 3,000 words. So it's not huge because there are whole books out there that talk about the history of fantasy and science fiction, et cetera. And so we condense everything. But it's been a lot of fun to find stories and novels and movies. So yeah. we mentioned a lot of movies too. And it's just been fun to figure out how to make the history interesting enough and fun enough to read and give somebody a context. Okay, here's how this started. Here's where it is now. Yeah. Like sword and sorceries changed a lot. And that's one of those things where you could write forever and ever and holding back and cutting it down and slimming it, editing it down has also been a bit of a challenge. <laughs> Yeah, and I can imagine there's definitely a lot you can go into on all of those subjects. Huge um, amounts, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's a great concept because I think people who do like genre fiction and just not showing where a story fits and being able to sort of find all these subsets and just knowing some of the tropes and that, that fine line between trope and cliche where you want yeah. something that the reader can go, oh, yeah, this is this genre. This is my wheelhouse. This is why I like reading this thing. Yeah. Rather than, oh, this is something that's done to death. And I've seen this again and again. But, yeah, having that sort of mapped out or even just having a touch point to say, if you like this, you can now explore and you know the genre. Yeah, because a lot of the sections are actual subgenres. Yeah. But then in a couple cases, we've taken more tropes. So we'll have a section on vampires and one on zombies, for example. And inside that, there's things that, like, like we all know about zombies, mm. 
but we don't all know where the actual uh, the trope came from in the first yeah. place way before Romero and before mm. that movie in the 1930s like before all that where it came from during colonization and it's fun to to explain it and to show where everything overlaps because it's yeah. so difficult to say one story is exactly one thing so we have a lot of references to other stuff and things have come up that we I like I didn't expect to be writing about how to write a sex scene for oh, paranormal right. romance like I do a whole <laughs> section on how to write a sex yeah. scene did not plan that. Fun to yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've written them before, so I enjoy uh, writing them. But I know it's one of those things that a lot of people don't quite know how to approach. And so I thought, yeah, I'll put that in there. Yeah. And there is no like the bad sex awards that yeah, very notable writers who clearly don't know how to write a sex scene. Yeah. And yeah. And if you go on TikTok, it seems that every uh, fantasy book is written by Sarah J. Maas. Uh, really? Um well, my wife describes it as fairy porn. And yeah, just that's generally the, the subset. It's very Mills and Boone fantasy. Um, wow. Taking Twilight to the next level. It's so. funny you mention that because my friend Amy, who she works at Waterstones in Cambridge, we were talking, she said, and she was talking about book talk because they're doing a thing with book talk. She says, I didn't realize that this was a thing right now. It's horny elves or horny fairies is yeah. the thing. And I thought that's a new subgenre to think about. So yeah. And, and uh, you know, sort of uh, mutual friend and uh, friend of the show, J.R. Warad. Uh, yeah, Blade. Yes. He did a very culturally interesting and thoughtful and intellectual Horny Elf book. It still can't get my head around how intellectual that book was, considering it was a very Horny Elf. It was brilliant. It's sitting um, on my shelf. I haven't opened it yet. Sorry, James. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's definitely worth your time and not for the, the things that you think but also for the things that you don't expect. But yeah, he's just a good writer in an annoying way. That's just, you, you don't expect the guy that we know yeah. writing the stuff that he writes. I was like, oh, yeah, oh, there's a brain here. <laughs> <laughs> there's a drinker. There's a drinker we know. And a, a brain behind. And a dancer. Yes. And a bad karaoke singer. But, oh, I mean, a wonderful karaoke singer. Anyway, we love James. Uh, yeah. Moving on. <laughs> Back to your writing. <laughs> Sorry, um, James. That's right. But, Speaking about your fiction, yeah. so when you have an idea, when you're developing a story, do you like to start with a scenario, a character, or a world that you'd like to explore? I tend to start with scenarios. A lot of ideas I get, and this is going to sound really woo-woo and strange, but you know that time like between when you're awake and asleep? Yeah. That is when I get a lot of ideas. I'll suddenly get an image in my head. And the next morning, I still remember the image. I can't shake okay. it. And it's just weird. And yeah. I think, what would that mean? And that's where I start going from there. I don't tend to start with characters unless I do this thing that I love to do where I take dead people from history and mess with their lives. <laughs> then I have somebody to start with to play with. Yeah. But I'm not a big secondary world builder. So I don't start with that. I might start with a time in history. So world building in that sense, but not fantasy world building. So yeah, I waver between some weird scenario or somebody who's been dead for hundreds of years who yeah. I want to resurrect. <laughs> and with that, you've been working on a fiction book this summer as well? Yeah. So I'm working on, in between trying to finish Spec Fic for Newbies, I've been working on more stories set in the Threading the Labyrinth Garden hey, to nice. be part of a collection that is okay. all garden themed. And I'm also finishing a novel that I've been trying to finish for a few years now, but it's apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic that I started way before COVID. So I'm okay. allowed because I love apocalyptic fiction. I yeah. read The Stand when I was like 11 and I've always wanted to destroy the world and rebuild it again. And so yeah. that's what that book is. Nice. Because I was going to ask about researching history when you're saying people from history and with threading the labyrinth, obviously it's that garden throughout history. And yeah. do you like researching historical periods and do you just go online and find resources online or do you actually have books and other resources that you turn to? So two things. A, threading was a different animal. I'll get to that in a second. B, yeah. I'm also working on, it's basically costume porn, literally porn. <laughs> <laughs> But in writing, not like a drama that you film. Yeah, you're not filming um, it. No, okay. no, I'm not filming it. <laughs> Set in the 18th century. So I'm doing okay. research for that. So yeah, I when I did Threading the Labyrinth, it was my PhD project. Mm. It was my dissertation. And so I spent years doing research. And because of what it was, because it's about 400 years in English garden, I got to go to gardens all over the country. I went to 
the Imperial War Museum when they had an exhibit on the Ministry of Food and Victory Gardens during World War II. I went to William Morris's house. I went to the VNA. I went to I went everywhere to do all this research. And I also have behind me on the shelves of craziness, I have four big giant full shelves of gardening history books. So when I'm sitting down to do the stories for the collection, I'll go through there and find something. Or I've done the same thing when I've been invited to anthologies. And I say, think, okay, I can do something about gardens. Let me pick up this book and just go through it and see what ideas yeah. I get. So I tend to do that. I use Pinterest for yeah. visual stimulation. <laughs> I don't know yeah. where that came from for visual stuff. So I have a bunch of different Pinterest boards for different time periods for the garden. Yeah. And I've started a new one for clothing, for 18th century clothing for this new project. So I like to have physical stuff handy. I can't, yeah. I don't use Kindle for nonfiction research books. Usually I remember where something is in a book physically. I'll remember, oh, it was about halfway through on the left side at the yeah. bottom and I can find it again. And I can't do that on Kindle. So I'll use online if I can't get somewhere, but I like to actually go see the yeah. thing. And I suppose actually going to gardens as well and actually getting that sense of being in nature and the feel of the space because it certainly comes across in your writing the way you describe the garden it's very evocative and if you've actually walked a lot of gardens that would yeah. certainly have helped yeah i took photographs i have i still have i don't know a couple thousand photographs from all the different gardens i went to and it would be everything from here's the layout to here up close of flowers to this is what it looks yeah. like during the season especially walled gardens i'm a complete mm. walled garden nerd so <laughs> Anytime I could find a wall garden, I'd go straight for that and take all the pictures I could of everything. Yeah. Well, are there places that you're looking to visit for your 18th century novel? No, because I can't get to Italy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But I can weirdly, because of the 18th century being what it was, I can think about the research I did on 18th century life and gardens here and take yeah. some of it and move it over. But I will have to do some Italian specific research yeah. it'll just take more books and yeah. visiting stuff online but because what i'm doing isn't how do i say this because the project i'm working on is not really focused on outside it's more i guess people could have sex outside it's more of <laughs> you know yeah. interpersonal relationships of yeah. a very intimate nature i don't need to know all the big stuff and what was going on politically etc yeah. etc so much people's bodies were yeah. very similar yeah uh, okay and completely differently the post-apocalyptic where you don't really need to i suppose you can go outside at the moment that's that's enough research but i guess you know fully creating a post-apocalyptic world must take a completely different approach how have you approached that that one is it's actually set in the states so okay. it's set in the kind of place that I'm familiar with and I'm familiar with the strip malls and where a school would be and where a supermarket would be and what things would look like. And so I've made a bit of an amalgam in my head of different places. I never name the exact mm. city where it's set because I want it to be a bit generic. And it's in a quasi gated community, which is also a bit generic. Yeah. It's not, you know, one of the really fancy ones. And so luckily I can use that from having grown up in the States. I can use that. And it's because I use most everything is set in, in a neighborhood. Mm. I don't have to worry so much about other stuff. There are scenes early where the protagonist is out in the world and has to deal with mm. things. And I do have a lot happen in a hospital. Luckily, one of my closest friends is a nurse. Okay. And so I asked her about the drug machines in hospitals. I needed to know how they worked. So right. I could find somebody who could give me the lowdown on, on that yeah. kind of stuff, which but is helpful. I had to, like, I've always said it like a near future. And then after the pandemic, I realized I really do need to at least hint that this happened because one of the characters is like 19. And when she was 12, the pandemic hit. And so she right. talks to her friend about when we were 12 and yeah. all this stuff happened. So we know that we're a few years in the future yeah. because I yeah. think it's weird now to not reference it. Yeah. That makes sense. And with uh, writing historical fiction and pornography and <laughs> apocalyptic fiction in different genres do you find that your general approach to mapping out and outlining these stories are quite similar you have a consistent approach to your projects or are they tailor-made oh, gosh so with threading because it was several years long and because it was because it was what it was as my phd project 
It was one of those things where I had to do like, try something out, see what failed, see what worked and just keep going at it. And I was doing research as I was writing it. Plus I was doing research for the nonfiction part of the dissertation. So I was doing a lot of other stuff. I wasn't just sitting in a room and writing a book over a year. It was like a five-year process. But doing that and then having it done and then thinking, okay, it's finished. How do I fix it, quote unquote, air quote, fix it to make it publishable because something that you do for a PhD and something you do for the market are two different things. And I had to start thinking about it a little bit differently. And so because I had to reverse engineer the whole project, it has got me to think of how I do the next projects more consciously from the beginning because the apocalyptic book, I started it before I ever started the PhD. So it's been hanging around for a decade. And again, I didn't plan it out the right way at the beginning because I didn't know what I was doing. And now I'm going back and having to, I started using Scrivener in May and I'm like, let me make this make sense. And so (laughs) it's it's something I wish I had done from the beginning, but now I've gone in and reorganized it all. So I know that it is making sense because there's like a parallel timeline. There's two characters. But projects from here on out, I am sitting down and saying, okay, let me plan this a little bit more carefully so I don't find myself in the weeds, wondering yeah. what I'm doing, hating myself, etc. So and- if we call it the Italian book. Well, <laughs> yeah, let's call it the Italian book. Uh, so with the Italian book, have you mapped out an outline for the plot before you start writing chapters? Yeah. Yeah, I'm working on an outline. The Italian project is going to be, I think, a collection of novellas. Okay. So a bit longer than short story, <laughs> longer one-handed reads. <laughs> so yeah, I've actually, I'm such a, I'm such a stationary nerd. I went to, to the Ryman's or whatever it was, the store. Yeah. And I got one of those spiral bound notebooks that has all the sections in it. Yes. So I'm like, each section is a different story, a different novella. So I know oh, nice. how to put this together because otherwise with the nonfiction book going on and with the ap- apocalyptic book going on and with other projects I have, I get overwhelmed. So if I have everything in one notebook, I feel much more in control of it. So yeah, it's, if I plan it out, then I have more time to think about what my character is doing and what they want and what they need. Yeah. And if I can get that vocalized up front, then I can sit down and I can write really fast. If I know what's going on, what a character is going to do, I can pound out words really quickly. It's when I'm faffing and like walking around in a dark room with a blindfold that it just takes me forever. Yeah. And writing short stories and novelers mm-hmm. and novels, because where I've spoken to short story writers before, it's often just a little deconstruction of one concept Mm -hmm. and it can be a couple of scenes and you're just exploring a simple theme and illustrating that quite simply with a novel you can be doing multiple themes real long character arcs the characters at the end are very different from where they are at the start there's a a full story mapped out and there could be multiple challenges that they're overcoming where it could be just one challenge in a short story with a noveler how do you approach that in as you say, it's slightly longer than a short story. So yeah. it, you're not just having that very simplistic couple of characters exploring one idea, and it's not as expansive as a novel. Yeah. So how do you map that out? What do you want to achieve in a noveler? Yeah, so this particular project, because it's a series of novellas, mm. it's different from a standalone novella. So like your standalone novella means, okay, I have this idea and it's not going to fit inside the arbitrary parameters of submission guidelines for X market where they say 5,000 or 7,000 words or 10,000 words. And you're like, I can't do it in that, but I can do it in 15 or 20. Because it's a series, I'm allowed to play that evil trick of stopping on a like a bit of a cliffhanger. Mm. So I'm thinking of it as a novel. I'm making arm gestures, people at home. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm doing like the big rainbow arms. (laughs) So I'm thinking of it as a novel in that sense, but more as episodes. So it's Mm. much more episodic, almost like each one is a long chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is like a through line for each one. There is a Mm. tiny arc for each one, but it might just be that this person has gotten to this place they need to go to and dealt with this little problem. But behind him is this bigger thing that they want. Kind of like the show Alias. Yeah. Which, yeah, that was the first time I realized that was how TV worked and why that was a problem sometime because that show was so great. But this is so off topic. So I remember watching Alias and loving it. And every episode ended on like this big cliffhanger. And there was this big thing in the background that everybody was working toward. And what they did after the first series, because it was popular enough and because of the people running the show and the network said, hey, we want more people to watch it, they started making everything way more easy for people to come in and just watch one. And it changed the way everything happened instead of it being 
more of a continuation, more yeah. episodic in that sense. And so yeah. that's made me think about this more differently. When you talk about episodic and the multi-characters each have with their own story arc, I, I instantly think Game of Thrones. And yeah. although it's a different genre and hopefully a less controversial ending and um, unnecessary rape, just get rid of it. Mine will all be consensual sex. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those books were very expansive with multiple points of view and that overarching plot but everyone having their own journeys. It's a lot of balls to juggle, though, as you're trying to write something that is going to be eight, 900 words yeah. rather than thinking, okay, here's one, like, why do I keep doing hand gestures? It's a know? little crab. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and in my language, I'm like a little poop. <laughs> yeah. So it's a different animal from doing something like Game of Thrones. I can't keep that much in my head at a time. Yeah. And I completely forgive Martin for not finishing because that's just a lot of stuff to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing I was going to ask about, actually. Are you a prolific note taker or do you try and keep it all in your head? No, I take notes and I take notes by hand, longhand, because I remember it better. Whereas everybody else like types out their notes or they write all of their appointments and everything down on their phones. I have to have it written down in paper right. so I remember it. And so all my notes are there, which unfortunately leads to the problem of having pieces of paper all over my office and trying yeah. to keep track of them all and telling myself oh I'll keep all these in the purple folder and mm. then suddenly they're all on the floor because I threw them on the floor as I finished and then I have to figure out which ones go in the purple folder yeah, yeah. so I do keep some stuff in my head but I will get to the point where I write it down because I know I will forget it and as you get older kids that really happens even when you don't want it to do yeah. your sudoku yeah. keep your brain sharp and we mentioned earlier that how you're right when you can it can be you know sort of just before lunch, it can be up to midnight. Do you try and write a section of a story? So do you write to a plot beat or an end of chapter? Or do you just leave it mid-scene and just go, okay, that's enough for today. I'm out. It's not really working anymore. Or do you have an opinion on word counts? When you are writing, do you have a minimum that you try to achieve? So just like how I can't seem to get into the schedule of writing at a certain time every day, I've never been able to get into the schedule of, okay, I have to do this many words today, this many words tomorrow, because something about having that pressure on me, and something always happens. Like I either have to go to the store and get something or something happens, something interrupts life. And so it's better for me not to have that guilt hanging over my yeah. head. So when I write, I tend to write in spurts, which yeah. I know sounds lovely. Like before when I was when I was still working at the university, I didn't get any writing done until there would be a bank holiday and my partner would go out of town and I would have three days to myself and I would have just frozen food in the house and I wouldn't shower for three days and I'd write 20,000 words. So I do that kind of thing. So that has unfortunately ruined me for being organized in the sense of, okay, I write to the end of a scene or end of yeah. a beat or end of something. I'll just write till I get to a spot where I think, I don't know what happens next. Right. And I need to think about it a little bit. Or if I do know where I'm going, like you say, I will write to the end of a thing because I've planned it yeah. that far. But yeah, I try not to, I try not to leave in the middle of a scene because I'm afraid I'll come back and not remember what I wanted to happen. Yeah. I'll write myself notes. I'll say, <laughs> write this thing tomorrow. This is what happens next. So I don't forget. That was literally just going to be my next question. At the end of the day, do you have like a, a little summary for yourself? And when you start a writing session, do you have to reread a significant amount or is it just you have a summary? I'll have a little summary. Yeah, I don't tend to I don't tend to go back and reread until I start editing and start messing with it. I, I try not to do that thing where I know a lot of writers will sit down and read everything they wrote up to that point and then go from there. And I just feel like every day it would just get longer and longer to read that. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll write myself notes. I will say this is what happens next. I don't know where this person is. Double check your notes to find out where that person is because they should be here. Yeah. And yeah, especially when you're dealing with something that has so many characters. It's like the apocalyptic book is in a neighborhood. And so I've named a lot of the neighbors and I keep giving them different names. So finally, <laughs> I made myself a list of characters and their addresses. So I knew where they were and who, what their kids' names were. And so I could find people again. So I'll write myself those notes. Remember who lives across the street and you have to have that person come over. And then I'll go look it up. That's cool. Yeah, I was going to say that when you've got that sort of enclosed or a finite space, a neighborhood, yeah. do you ever draw maps? So you actually have that physical and visual representation. I have done that before. This map I mostly have in my head because it's based on a neighborhood that I knew. But yeah, I have done that before. I've done it for this one once because there's a fire in one of the houses and I had to figure out which house it was near and who lived there. Mm. So I couldn't remember. 
So I had like little boxes on a page with the addresses and the people's names to figure out whose house burned down, which seems so mean to my characters. (laughs) You're just a drawing on the page. Sorry about your house. (laughs) (laughs) And you mentioned earlier how you can write until you're not quite sure what happens next and you need a bit of uh, thinking time. If you get really stuck, if you really can't think Mm -hmm. those uninspired periods, is it a waiting game of just okay, I'll just wait for the creative part of my brain to work through that problem. Or do you have any processes that like help move it along? Do you do writing exercises? Do you go for walks? Do you just start day drinking and hope for the best? How do you get through the uninspired periods? Two things. One thing, when I was teaching writing, one thing I would tell my students, waiting for the muse, you're going to be waiting all day. It's not yeah. going to happen. If you do the thing, it like changes your brain chemistry and then you can do more of the thing. So sit down and even if you write, this is garbage, this sucks, I can't believe I'm doing this, blah, blah, blah. I went to the store and it'll start to help your brain. And that creativity is problem solving. So when you sit down with nothing, if I said to a student, write me a story, they're going to go, I don't know what to write about. But if I say, write me a story about a dog that can talk, that's on another planet, that's waiting on a train, they'll go, ooh. And their brain tries to figure out how to fix it. And so when I'm stuck... I will either start asking myself questions and I try to stick with the yes and no's because if I ask myself open-ended questions, sometimes yeah. I get stuck, but I will also do things to let my, I call my back brain. If, and I've had this before, especially like on that first novel I worked on with Angel, there was this one thing I knew something was missing and it was driving me crazy. And I said to her, something's missing. I don't know what it is. Something's missing. And so I would go driving. I can't drive here in the UK yet. I know that's sad. I still have to get my license. <laughs> <laughs> I have my learner's permit, but I haven't got my license. But I lived near the country, and so I would just go out driving, or here I'll go for a walk, or I'll go do dishes. I'll do something mindless, and my back brain will figure it out because it was always there. It was just hiding from me. And I remember that day I called her. I said, are you home? I'm coming over. And I walked into her kitchen. I said, I figured it out. We did the jumping up and down and yaying. And I said, okay, now I have to go home and write. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so it's either start asking questions and kind of interrogate my way out of the hole or go do something else and distract myself and let my brain take a break and it will come up with the solution if there's a particular gnarly thing I can't figure out. Nice. And a question I like to delve in with all guests on the show is imposter syndrome. And I used to have like, have you ever had it to realizing that actually (laughs) all writers have it. It's, and it's always there. Is there a particular point that you, it really hits in a writing project because I know sometimes when you first start you're all excited and it's just like getting the words down it's like all, all nice and creative do you get to a certain like word count or second act third act where the doubt creeps in and you begin to lose faith in a project and how do you you know push past that to complete it's hard threading's been on the shelf for two two years and I still have imposter syndrome about that book and it's been published for two years. It's a weird thing to ask because I spent so many years teaching newer writers at university. And so I would have to talk to them about this exact thing and be really honest about them and say, I do this too. I need you guys to not do this because you have a deadline, (laughs) but I know where you're coming from because I do it all the time myself. And so one of my mantras I came up with, which is it's obnoxious as hell, but it's why not me? Yeah. You know, you see other people with success or they publish something or they do whatever, and you start to think that they have this golden shine. But then you know them and you know they're just a schmo like you. You go to a pub, you know their secrets, you know they're like just a nerd. And so I think, then why not me? I've worked yeah. hard. I've done this thing. And that's not even just writing. I think everybody does that in life. And yeah. and there's a funny little saying that goes around that's like, everybody, everybody feels like this all the time. Like, we all think we're still 12. <laughs> we're all faking it till we make it. And yeah. so I try to get out of my own head and think about that stuff. And I do look at my little shelf of books and anthologies. And I think I've done this. Pe- people wouldn't buy it if they thought it was shit. So yeah. that's a good thing. I, that, that kind of proves to me that I'm not a loser. It's so hard. Man, writers, we are sad and pathetic, messy things. <laughs> we seriously are. We're a mess. And it feels like so much of our life is chasing that mm. gold star sticker. And for somebody to say, oh, you did a good job. And you're like, thank you. <laughs> because you don't hear it often enough. And that's why it's so great. I have so many writer friends and I read their books. And they say, oh, this was great. I love this. This was awesome. Because yeah. I know what it feels like when somebody reminds you that you can actually do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's one of the gifts of this show, I think, is being able to talk to writers about it and seeing that shared experience that you all have 
and yeah. being able to publish this out in the world so other writers can listen to it and go oh okay it's not just me because yeah. it is such a isolating experience it's so insular but then I guess like working with Val on the how to write specific book is quite a liberating experience because you're riffing off each other and having yeah. and someone we- there to spur each other on yeah, exactly. And we're using our experience. And there's that thing where you start to think, who am I to write a book about writing? And I'm like, I'm somebody who has a PhD in writing and spent 10 years as a university lecturer. And yeah. I know what the hell I'm talking about. And he's the same. So that's who I am to do this. I've built my own expertise and my own experience in this. Yeah. And I'm right now, another project I'm working on building is to actually build online writing courses with somebody else with somebody else who's also got a PhD and is also a published author and so we're working on building the courses and that keeps coming in I keep thinking why would somebody like buy a course that I did I'm like because I did it for a living because I've done this stuff why not me and going more on to the editing side now uh, because I love editing the old adage writing is rewriting with your own work you just said there that you love rewriting do you like to write complete drafts so just go okay that's draft number one now i'm going to rewrite the whole thing or do you like to rework individual scenes and go no i just want to get this section right before i move on to the next one i tend to redo individual scenes when i'm working on a short story i'll try to get through to the end of a draft so one of the mantras i taught my students was we can edit shit on a page but not shit in your head and so yeah. I'm a firm believer in just writing the crappiest first draft because <laughs> get it on the page. We can do something with that. And I spent so many years working with writers that it's really honed my editing chops. And I look at my own stuff much better than I did at the beginning. Yeah. And so with a short story, I'll get through to the end and then I'll go back and start messing with it. But with a novel, because it's just such a big monster, I'll get to the end. And then that's when I think, okay, now because as you, as you write a book, you discover things and something will happen. I think, oh, I've got to go back and add this thing to this earlier chapter. I'll write myself a note and then I'll do it after I finish a whole draft. I try to. The apocalyptic book is a bit a, a different animal because it has been built in so many different pieces. It was originally each chapter was a different month. And then I realized that wasn't going to work. And I made it each one a different season. I'm like, no, that's not going to work <laughs> either. So I've restructured it. I don't know how many times now. So if I ever finish it, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> But other stuff, yeah, I'll work on a section or a scene at a time. It's just easier that way. Otherwise, you get overwhelmed. No, absolutely. And when you're going through your sections, do you like to read it off at the screen? I know some people like to print it off and make annotations. So when you're looking at what to improve, how do you mark it up? How do you identify that's what's not working and that the pace is off? Every part is a little bit different. Mm. So when I wrote the book, it's called The Heart Scarab, by the way, that first novel I wrote a million years ago. When I wrote The Heart Scarab, it had three different timelines and all these different places. And so we got to the point where we had note cards and each scene was a different color for a different POV character. And in the corner, we wrote like where they were, whether there was peril or not, all the things and used my living room and laid them out on the floor to figure out what order to put things back into. So we did the physical thing of that. When I do short stories, I tend to print them because it doesn't take a whole lot of ink or paper. And I'll tend to edit on the page and I'll write. And that's what I used to do with students until COVID happened. And then I couldn't print and I couldn't see people. So I got much better at doing it on the screen because I was a proofreader for a while. I was an editor. I edited and wrote textbooks for several years. And so I got used to writing on proofs, Mm. but I've had to shift to doing it on a screen. So for books i'll write notes because it's too much to print it out so i might draw out a structure yeah Yeah. was there another part of that question i lost i don't think so we have been drinking a fair amount of gin oh i haven't had that much (laughs) oh i'm on my third i'm just are you i'm actively listening and just constantly retopping oh i'm trying uh, not to make noise on the microphone so i haven't had that much of mine uh, i've got directing mic so i can just like tip my head to one side you're not even hearing the glass the ice tinkle (laughs) i should have got the straw (laughs) (laughs) This is why I brought the bottle to the interview. Yeah, I was going to ask you, with that editing, do you read aloud your work to yourself? Never. No. No. No? (laughs) I know a lot of people say, and they say, oh, you should read your work aloud. You know, thousands of years ago, we told stories orally. We didn't have written language or what have you, or a lot of people couldn't read. So we told stories, and that was a natural thing. We don't do that now. I know a lot of people listen to audiobooks, which is cool. They put me to sleep. I can't listen to them. For me, reading something aloud to find stuff is really artificial. Okay. So I don't tend to do it, which 
if other people want to do it fine it's just not my it's not my jam that's right I think it's good to have that opposing view because recently I have had a lot of people yeah (laughs) I, I just put everyone's opinions out and then it's the listeners to make their own judgment no but it's good to hear a published writer who has taught creative writing who's writing a book on creative writing who has like multiple books out that and multiple stories out and doesn't read them aloud because yes you do hear that as a piece of advice it's just proving the point that you don't have to and that if you don't read your story aloud it doesn't mean that you're not a writer it doesn't mean that it's not going to be any good no not at all yeah it's just a different process so i'm actually quite happy when i do hear (laughs) the same piece of advice over and over and then someone goes yeah i don't do that yeah poetry's different poetry's more of a performance thing it makes mm-hmm. sense but for prose it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me and as far as finding mistakes i pride myself on in handing in like the cleanest copy i can as far yeah. as like typos and spelling and all that kind of stuff it's sometimes the bigger things that i can't yeah. see anymore that's when i need somebody else that's when i need my editor or somebody to say okay you know this, you this transitions lovely onto the next question which is once you've got the story the best that it can in isolation who reads it next does it go to an editor directly or do you have beta readers is it your partner who's the first person to read it once you're happy with it Okay. My partner, he's literate, but he doesn't read fiction. I think he might've read like one erotica story I wrote. I don't know if he's ever Uh, read anything else. That's cool. He's got his own stuff. No, it's fine. Plus I don't think, and I tell my students this all the time, unless your mom or your dad is actually a writer or in publishing, your mom's going to love everything that comes out of you. So don't, don't use them for a beta reader. But I have a writing group that meets in London. And when I lived in London, I would go in person. And now we've gone online because of the pandemic. So if I have something, I'll give it to them. If it's the time of year that's right, I will give it to Milford. I go to Milford every other year, the Milford Writers Workshop up in Wales. So they've seen a lot of my stuff. They saw a first bit of the novel of threading when it first was being created. And what they saw has nothing to do with what the book (laughs) ended up being at all. Yeah. They said, no, this isn't working. They'll see it. And then like for Unsung, George, Dan saw it at Unsung. And I got, they said, oh, you need to work on this theme here and this, you need to get rid of this POV character. And so the big stuff we worked on together. Yeah. So I don't have a single person I send it to. I have different groups of people depending on what's going on in the world and where I am in it and where the schedule of the year is, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. And with your academic background, obviously your first published novel being your PhD project, your experience with the editing must be like slightly different because with that, you're like, I need to do what my tutor says because I want to get my PhD. So I feel there's quite a power balance there. Did you feel that you could argue the point with that editing process? or And how's your view of editing as you've also taught creative writing? Can it still sting? Can it still be, oh, damn it, they're right <laughs> or they're wrong? And I'm going to write a strongly worded letter why they're wrong. Or is it just, I need that input and they're there to make it better. And I crave that feedback. What's your approach to an editor? When I wrote Threading, I had two supervisors. My main, my first supervisor was Farah Mendelssohn and she mainly supervised me through the nonfiction, through the dissertation. My dissertation was space and time and gardens. Um, So it was like theories of space and time in fictional gardens and in real gardens and time travel and all that kind of stuff. My second supervisor was for the fiction. And unfortunately, I got a few of them pregnant. I kept going through second supervisors. They just kept they kept going on mat leave. And then one quit the day after I first met her. It got to the point where Farah said, do not breathe near any of my other lectures (laughs) because they keep going on mat leave. And I ended up with Una McCormick. Amazingly, she ended up being my final second supervisor who got me through the end, the really the bulk middle and end of writing Mm -hmm. that book. Oh man, she's really good at planning everything. She knows when she sits down to write a book, she knows every chapter and every scene and exactly what happens. And then here I show up this complete mess going, here's all my stuff. So she helped me focus a lot more and that was really good. But as far as feedback, it was, so you do have supervisors when you do a PhD, but it's your PhD. Mm. And so you own it and you're an adult and they'll say, I think you should do this. And you sit and you think, okay, yeah, I can totally see that. Or you can decide that's not what you want to do. Whereas if it's an editor at a publishing house who's actually going to publish your book, you tend to listen to them because they're doing this for a living, for their living, et cetera. And over the years from doing the PhD, from being in writing groups, from going to a bunch of different writing workshops I've been to, some harsher than others, I've grown a really thick skin. I don't really have any problems with people giving me feedback, even if it seems harsh. I'm okay with it. And that's something that was 
sometimes difficult to deal with when I was teaching because I had new baby chicken writers who had never done workshopping before. Or nobody else had ever read their work before and they had yeah. to suddenly share it and talk about it. And so it it got me to be a lot more sensitive about certain things, but at the same time, I'm very not mean, but it's forthright the word. Uh, yes, it can be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would tell students like, this isn't working, but here's why it's not working. I think that's the important thing is if you give somebody feedback, it's not just fix this, it's fix this because here's X, Y, Z that isn't working that you can improve. And so I think it's, people say it's constructive criticism, but I think it needs to be really deeply thought through criticism. Mm. And so you show, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass that I think this is garbage. Yeah. Basically. No, absolutely. Yeah. And when a, a project, especially when you've worked on projects for so many years, is there like a grieving period once a project's actually done and once it's actually signed off? Or is it just a sense of relief of just, ah, oh, it's done. But I can actually move on to other things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Both, actually. Yeah, because it, it's great to have it done. And like right now, Val and I are working toward this deadline at the end of September. And we, we got delayed a bit because of life stuff. And so once it's done, I'll be like, whoa, that's great. Finished. Because yeah. I have other things waiting in the wings I haven't had time to do. Yeah. But yeah, when you finish a big thing, you do have this moment of, I don't know what to do with myself next. I have all this other stuff, but so much time and focus was put into this one. And now you've taken it away from me. I don't know how to switch gears to this other thing yet. And you, you kind of need a break, even if it's yeah. just a few days where you just go and faff and go get a massage and get a pedicure yeah. or do whatever you need to do while you're thinking of the new thing. Cause it feels, it, it'll start, it feel too much like production line. If I go from one thing to the next mm. within a day. Yeah. When something has finished, do you have any kind of ritual, open a bottle of bubbly, go on a holiday? Do you have anything that you do to celebrate or just take a break for a couple of days. How do you deal with the time between projects? After I finished threading, it was a lot of, I can now go to the movies or read for fun. Mm. So it was a lot of that because it was such a different project. For other smaller projects and for the one, yeah, because threading came out and lockdown happened. Mm. I didn't have all of my in-person signings and launches were all canceled. Everything was gone. So it was very sad trombone. It was very, like when I signed the contract, I was at FantasyCon. I signed the contract and went to go on a panel mm. and I told everybody I just signed a contract. Everybody clapped and it was awesome. And I had some drinks that night, but because with a book you have signing the contract, going through edits, handing in the final thing, waiting for the, the cover reveal, waiting for it to hit the shelves. There's so many different stages of stuff. If you drink for all those, you'll never stop drinking. And that's a problem. So, <laughs> so it's like, you have to pick which one's going to be your big thing. And so what I do when I finish stuff is I buy a piece of jewelry. Okay. Yeah, nice. I bought I bought myself a Alex Monroe B from Liberty when I finished threading. Yeah, it was awesome because I'd quoted his autobiography in my dissertation and it's a B because I love bees. And so I got to go to Liberty and buy something fancy and expensive in the purple bag and all that crap. And then when a threading was coming out, I bought myself a bracelet. So yeah, I buy myself a little thing to celebrate and then and then sit in pajamas all day in my office and nobody sees my cool jewelry. <laughs> and would you pick something out before you finish the project? Is it, we need to finish this project so I can get the thing? Or is it you finish the project and then it's just, okay, now I'm just going to look for something that fits? I've done both. The B, I knew I wanted the B. Yeah. Like I knew, oh, I knew I wanted the B. And I wanted to go to Liberty because Liberty is, yeah. I would live in Liberty if I could. It's such a pretty mm. store. I can't afford it, but it's so pretty. Yeah. But when threading was finally coming out, I was at this one store that has this great jewelry. And I said, ooh, I want to buy myself a new cute animal-y thing. Yeah. And so I knew what I wanted, but I hadn't picked out one before. And so that was fun. But when I when I got my first royalties from threading, I bought a piece of art from an artist that I always want to buy a piece of art from. Nice. It's in the hallway. It's a Margaret Welty. She's always exhibits at EasterCon and she does very gardeny drawings and it'll be like flowers with dragon heads. I mean, I was kind of leading up to, is there a piece of jewelry <laughs> or art that you have your eye on? for finishing a, as you have a project that you're hopefully finishing in a month i don't oh gosh no you know what isn't that funny i haven't thought about it and now i'm gonna think about it because yeah when i turn in when we turn in specfic in a month and then it yeah. comes out next easter so yeah. depending on the next few months i might wait for yeah. right before easter con and yeah. go find my special jewelry and it'll have to be something science fiction fantasy themed yeah definitely and i have my last two questions but i feel that we've answered them already because it's just is there anything you've learned from a previous story that you're now applying to your latest work? I think we covered that with outlining. Uh, I think the fact that yeah. you are now outlining, 
So I'm going to modify it a bit because you're writing a book about writing. Yeah. Is there anything that you've learned now on this project that you think you might apply to future writing? Oh my gosh, that's such a difficult thing because this project is nonfiction because I'm writing it with somebody else and I'm taking all that stuff that is, it is internalized. Like one thing as we're writing, I keep thinking, oh, I need to cite a source for this. And I think, but I don't have one. This is me. This is what mm. I used to teach. And so because of that, it's such a different animal from writing fiction. But I think maybe but, using Google Docs has been nice. <laughs> like using the well, text it's just, has been nice. Because you're working with Val and so you're getting his input on the project yeah. as well and his opinions on writing things. And because it's covering so many genres and you've had to do some research into those genres true you would have definitely have had opinions about these these subgenres before you started but with the input of val and the research yeah. you've done in producing this book has any of those opinions changed or modified that you think actually what i was thinking before i'm slightly different i'm a slightly different person coming out of this book than i was before in a way, I am a slightly different person coming out of this because, you know, I used to write textbooks. I've written articles and that kind of nonfiction stuff. But doing something like this that that students are going to pick up, that other writers are going to pick up, that's going to last a little bit longer than like an online blog article or something. It has shown me that I can do this and I have stuff to say. And I do know stuff. Yeah. As conceited and shitty as that sounds, I know <laughs> stuff. I've spent lots of years knowing stuff. Yeah. And so I've worked with other writer before, but doing this project has shown me how much fun it can be. And one thing that Val and I do, when we have something to say to the other person that might be a little scratchy, we're like, do you trust me? Yes, I trust <laughs> you. And that's like the yeah. code of, okay, I'm going to tell you a thing, but I'm yeah. saying it from my heart and from our shared friendship we've had for so it's long. Yes, space. exactly. It's a safe space. Exactly. And so working on this makes me know I'd love to write more nonfiction books. I'd love okay. to do this more because it's so much fun to do this research. And as far as the content, that's changed me in a way because there's all these subgenres I know about, right? Yeah. And I've read my students' work and I've been talking about it in class and blah, blah, blah. But actually having to sit down and process all of them, now there's so many that I want to write in more. Mm. And there's certain things like theme. Theme is one of those elements that I just hammer on about to my students. I have for years and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I've had to figure out new ways to explain it every time to get students to really get what I'm talking about. And I've had to do it here again. Mm. And so having to do this has brought home to me how to explain things better, easier, yeah. more clearly, with more humor. I'm doing the hand yeah. signals again, yeah. <laughs> doing the hand gestures. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think having genre or just creative writing text about theme and about different elements yeah. of the writing process would be really good and yeah. uh, definitely worth reading. I hope uh, so. Because <laughs> yeah. some writing books out there are they're really serious. Mm. They feel like they take themselves a bit too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be quite hard, I think, with some writing books where they're encompassing so much of the writing process yeah and it might be that there's a writer who's struggling on theme you know on, on a specific part of the writing process so you can get the component that you're struggling on and just read that yeah and the one thing because of the way this book is put together so we do have a list of different writing elements and in certain places where it's natural we've talked about an element some of them are science fiction fantasy specific like magic systems okay this is the right place i'm going to talk about magic systems for a paragraph other spots it might be oh let me talk about mood versus tone and so we haven't covered everything it's not mm. that kind of book yeah. but it's more let's talk about this fun subgenre you like this and by the way i'm going to teach you a little bit more about mood versus tone that maybe you mm. didn't know that you didn't know instead of let's go element by element and really bore the pants off you yeah yeah and my final question is and again i feel that you've answered this before so i might ask it in a different way because it's what's the one piece of advice you find yourself returning to when you're writing and you did mention the why not me earlier as someone who's taught students so many is there if any of your students said yeah dr angus had a, a catchphrase one thing yeah. that you feel that you're known for as giving a piece of advice what would that be i know they would all come back and say what i say is we can edit shit on a page but not shit in your head and i'd say it just like that at cursive class because they're gross <laughs> but yeah. yeah and they would all look at me and go oh she she said yeah. shit twice I'm like yes because that's important yeah 
that was the thing. You know, you got to get over yourself and you've got to get over the fear and the anxiety of what you're writing is garbage because it's going to be garbage. But I don't have VSP. I can't help you edit something that you're thinking about. And that's the same thing for me. I can't edit the stuff that I'm thinking about. I actually have to see if it's going to work on the page and then I can edit it for years until I'm ready to let it go. I think that's a a nice place to to end for now. And I feel like in a few years, we'll have you back and see what's happening then. Cool. That would be awesome. But for today, Tiffany Angus, thank you very much for being a guest on The Real Writing Process. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. And that was the real writing process of Tiffany Angus. I hope you found lots of interesting little nuggets of wisdom in there. Her next book, Spec Fic for Newbies, or whatever the final title will be, is co-written with Val Nolan and shall be released by Luna Press Publishing in 2023. And as soon as it's available for pre-order, I will be posting it on my socials. Now, I'm publishing this shortly after Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, so... I'll say Tiffany is currently on Twitter, um, but I will link to her website in the show notes as it has her blog and list all her published work, as well as her social media accounts, uh, which might be subject to change. This is also going out midway through National Novel Writing Month, often abbreviated to NaNoWriMo. So to all those taking part, I wish you well. You're a bunch of lunatics who must be overcome with self-loathing. You have my sympathies. In the meantime, to everyone listening... Look after yourselves and keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend. Or your sworn ally No, it's the harshest mistress of all And life is just a chain A moment spent A thousand hellos and goodbyes Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near until the world is and you are safe with me until the world is and I Tides never 